Matthew 17, 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. If you could choose an event from Jesus' life to witness... What would you choose? Take, take a little time. And there's a lot of wonderful ones to pick from. His birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, witnessing any of his miracles, maybe hearing him teach the Sermon on the Mount or any of those other times that he taught crowds of people. Perhaps it's this right here that we just read about, the transfiguration. There's so many to pick from and so many of them that reveal the power that was and is his. But the transfiguration, it's unique. Because here we encounter the unveiled display of the glory that was always and is for all eternity the Son's. And it's the only place during his earthly ministry that we encounter it, right here. Charles Wesley, while writing about his birth, he alludes to this, to this brilliant reality when he puts to verse in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Maybe it's already coming to your mind. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. What Peter, James, and John witnessed was that veil being removed, but for a moment. And the result was that refulgent glory that burst forth unbounded. I mean, as you read this, and maybe, I don't know, but I mean, did it, did it make the rest of the area appear dim as this brightness shone, as this this blinding light comes on the top of this high mountain. What was the effect all around the mountain down below? Oh, we don't know. But I mean, that's the brightness and the glory of this light. That these men, I mean, did you, did you catch in there? It, Peter's on his feet at this point when that veil's pulled back. They saw that these men could keep their feet and even utter any words 
As this happened, it should amaze us. They saw the unveiled glory of the sun. They saw two highly significant men in the unfolding of redemptive history that were forerunners of Christ and who'd been dead for hundreds of years, standing there with Jesus. And they heard the voice of the Father, at the sound of which they fell down. I think they had some stories they could tell. The stories they could tell you if you could buy them a cup of coffee, sit down with them, they would be jaw-dropping. That they didn't spend a lot of time in Scripture regaling us with more details about this, it should also instruct us about the place of personal experience in comparison with the priority of the gospel. That's, that's a topic more for another time. But maybe the question came to your mind about why now? What, why this transfiguration now in the unfolding of Jesus' earthly ministry? Well, we want to consider what's taken place in, in chapters 16 and 17, specifically starting at 13. And at 13, we remember Jesus, he, or Peter, he confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. But we also remember what happened shortly after that. Jesus makes his first prediction of his death, and, and Peter says, what? This shall not be, surely not, Lord. And ever since Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus, it's interesting, he's been proceeding to correct Peter and the rest of the disciples, their misconceptions about the Messiah. He's like, well, surely not, the Messiah can't die. And Jesus, he's, he's so wonderfully comforting and instructing and merciful to them as he walks them through this. He talks about what discipleship requires. And the reality that one must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow after him. That's part of that discipleship. And it's here. The Father graciously gives both Jesus and his closest disciples a sign of Jesus' glory. And of the Father's favor when they need it most. And there's a wonder in that confession. But then there's also that, no, this can't happen. And the Father chooses now. What he reveals to them when they need it most is that the suffering Son and the glorious Son are one. They're the same. This event here, it's, it's, it's full of symbolism. It, it's under a heavy weight of symbolism, but the main event and the point, they're simple. Despite his suffering. Jesus is the glorious Son, and his disciples should listen to him. The disciples, they struggle to understand this, and, and they do make some progress. I mean, we do see some understanding coming at the end of this passage, but note that the understanding is not a complete understanding, but they're growing. Little steps forward. And like it or not, we're, we're very much like them, right? Have we gained an understanding, and yet our understanding is not complete? And as we gain an understanding, we, we probably have more questions too, don't we? And so the disciples are growing. But as they go up this mountain, one of the things that we recognize is they go up the mountain. And historically, we, we know that mountains, they were places of revelation. And considering the two people that showed up, Moses and Elijah, 
Mountains were places of revelation, not just for these disciples that Jesus took up on the mountain with them. They were in the history of Israel. They were places of revelation. Moses, we read about in Exodus 3 and 4, he sees this burning bush. God says, I've got a job for you. Moses tries to make excuses, but goes about that job. Brings the people of Israel out. Then he goes up a mountain again in Exodus 19 and 20. God gives him his word, word for his people. He knows the heartbreak of going back down and seeing them going their own way, and he returns up that mountain again in Exodus 34, and he's given this wonderful vision where, where God hides him in the cleft of the rock, but he sees the glory of God. Elijah. Elijah had some experiences on mountains too. In 1 Kings 18, he goes up the mountain and he has this great like standoff with the prophets of Baal. And they build these altars and they each get a they each get a bull and they sacrifice it. And the prophets of Baal, I mean to no avail, nothing happens. And then Elijah, he says, All right, we're gonna do the same thing, build that altar put the bowl on it, dig a trench around it. Now, I want you to douse it three times with water. And he prayed, and God answered by, by fire, ate up everything that was there, even licked up the water. And so the people saw the power of God. They were limping between Baal and God. And Elijah had said, the God who answers by fire, he is God. But in the very next chapter, Elijah's scared, and he's running for his life from Jezebel. And he ends up on another mountain. And it's here where we get that phrase, the still small voice. That was up on a mountain where God revealed himself in a different way from Moses, but revealed himself to Elijah. What we know about when God calls his messengers up a mountain, he reveals himself. He doesn't keep them there, does he? He also sends them back down. He sends them back down as well, and he sends them back down to bear witness to him and to serve in a fallen world. Moses went back down that mountain in Exodus 34. He had this radiant face. Elijah went back down, and God had given him a job to do, which he did. It's interesting that you know, when, when we come back down those mountains and serve, we serve in a fallen world, we're to proclaim the wonder of the God who is and who continues to work. There's a difference between God the Son and God's appointed messengers when they go up on mountains. Jesus, when he goes up on the mountains, he goes up to pray. That's what we see him consistently doing. He went away, went up on a mountain to pray. But being that he is fully God, what is there that God would reveal to him? I mean, he's, I mean he goes up the mountain and he's talking to his dad. Because what we get a glimpse of here, one of the things we have to remember is that's who he always was. The exact imprint of his father. The difference between the God the Son and God's appointed messengers when they go up the mountains is that God the Son doesn't receive any revelation. He converses with his father. God's appointed messengers, they receive something previously unknown or unexperienced by them. And it's intended to shape them and grow them for what God has for them to do. And so Jesus, he calls these three, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of disciples, to go up this mountain. And he was transfigured. He changed form in some way. What was revealed was the Son's glory. 
And it wasn't the glory that he acquired. It's the glory that was always his before time, in time eternal that he always had with his father. But in this transfiguration, what we see is that these disciples who are there, what do they get a taste of? They get a taste of heaven. I mean, they've had little, 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 little bits, right? The mute speaking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking. They've been seeing what happens when the king draws close and the kingdom is brought. All that's wrong is, 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 is made right. They've seen it in little bits and pieces. And now up on this mountain, what they see is that beatific vision. They see the fullness of the glory. And for them, it was that temporary thing. This is the only time they saw the unveiled glory. But for Jesus, this wasn't a temporary thing. It's a state of being. Because forever and ever, he is the Lord of glory. And that's one of the things we have to remember. Jesus didn't acquire a glory. He had glory. When he took flesh upon himself, that's, that's why Paul writes in Philippians 2, 5, and 7, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that means to have everything that is God's, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. doesn't mean that he removed any glory, but he took flesh upon to himself, that veil, and by taking the form of a servant, he was being born in the likeness of men. All of his glory remained all his. He submitted to the limitations of flesh. Colossians 1, 15 and 19, read that whole section, but Colossians 1, 15 and 19 reminds us of the truth of who he is and who he's always been. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness. You hear the redundancy in that? How, Paul wants you to know how full, how full full he was. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so they see this wonder of the God who is and in whom there's no variation or change or shadow. And, and maybe there's a little bit that points forward to what we will be. Because John, who was there on that mountain, he would go down knowing that he doesn't like refract that glory in any way, shape, or form. But what he writes in 1 John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's not in doubt. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What had John seen on that mountain? He'd seen him as he is. Now, what's going to take place later on? I mean, there's still a lot of mystery around that. But John had gotten a glimpse of who he is. And look at the hope and the joy that he writes. He says, we will we'll see him as he is. We'll see him as he is. And so they witness this glorious thing. But as they see this glory of Christ, they also see a couple of guys. Moses. And Elijah. Now, I don't want to speak for any Jews, but if there were like a top two, or just let's go top five. These two guys, for a religious Jew, they prob they're, they're in that top five probably pretty solid. Moses and Elijah, they're on the mountain. And they speak to Jesus. 
And who are they? Moses, he's the lawgiver. Elijah is like the mold for the prophets. So we have Moses and Elijah, we have the law and the prophets that are here. I mean, those, those representatives of the law and the prophets. And you remember, what, is Je- what did Jesus say earlier on in Matthew that we read? I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to what? To fulfill the law and the prophets. And here we have the, the representatives of those offices, of those writings. And so Jesus, their topic that they're talking about here was his death. Moses talks to Jesus, the great prophet, who he'd foretold in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. God will send you a prophet like me, and it's to him you will listen. Now Moses is having a talk with him, and Jesus' three best friends are witnessing it. And Elijah. Remember what Elijah was sent, God sent Elijah, the people, they were wavering, they were, they were wavering in their devotion, they were enticed by Baal. And God sends Elijah to call them back to him, to restore them to him. And Elijah, I mean, he does everything he can and he does it by the power of God, but, but here comes this one, this great prophet who Moses had foretold, and here's this one who finishes the work of Elijah by leading God's people to him. Because in him, men are restored to God. Perhaps Moses and Elijah, you ever wonder, what are they talking about? We know they're talking about his death. But I mean, these ones that God inspired to write what, they, what, write what Moses write, to do what Elijah did, maybe, maybe they're talking, and, and Jesus, they're talking to him about, this is what you were born for. This is the end of the curse of the law. This is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Because in essence, the law and the prophets, they came to Jesus on the mountain to encourage him in his mission. Because they're talking about his death, his his impending exodus, departure from this world. And we see that they're both, we've mentioned, they're major actors in redemptive history, but together they reveal much more than they do separately. We already mentioned they represent the law and the prophets. But secondly, they both had epoch-shaping roles. Moses led Israel out of Egypt and into nationhood, but he's the paradigm for salvation of deliverance from the evil power and into the place that God has promised. Elijah, he works for that renewal when much of Israel had succumbed to idolatry with Baal. And so they had these epoch-shaping roles, but do you see how together they come together in Christ? Because Christ, what is he doing? He's leading people out of slavery and into the land that God has promised, that ultimate promised land. What is he doing in that, you know, what is he doing? He's fulfilling the work that Elijah had begun pointing to. Here's where the truth is. Leave the idols that have enticed you and that you followed. Leave them behind. Come find your rest in me. Third, we can say, in all honesty, that they both had an unusual exodus. Their departure out of this world, 
Both of these men had something unusual. You remember what happened to Moses? He didn't get to go where? He didn't get to go over the Jordan into the promised land. But God took him up on a high mountain and he showed him all of it. And you remember what happened after that? Moses died. Do you remember who buried him? God buried him. God buried Moses on that mountain, a place unknown to any man, woman, or child in all time. But God took the time to bury his servant. And Elijah, I mean, that's a way to exit. Elijah, goat up, went up, goat up, sorry. <laughs> Elijah went up by a world whirlwind into heaven. Elisha, as he witnesses, says, I see the chariots, I see the horses of God, and Elijah would go up into heaven. They both had these unusual Exodus or departure from the world. And here now, this one whose glory has been beholden. What was his unusual exodus from the world? A cross and a grave that wouldn't remain full. It would be emptied. Victor over death. And 40 days later, he would ascend. Welcomed into the throne room of God, to be seated at God's right hand. Fourth, they both had singular revelations from God. God keeps his promises. In Moses, Moses in Exodus 34, he asks God, he's asked God, I want to I see your face. And God's response is, no one can see me and live, Right? But here's what I'll do. I will put you in a cleft of the mountain and I will cover over you with my hand. And as I pass, all of my glory will pass before you and you will see the backside glory. So he does get that vision and God pronounces his name before him and Moses goes down the mountain and what does his face do? He shines. He has to wear a veil before the people because the people were like, I can't even look at that. And Moses is reflecting this glory. But, but do you remember... We just what Moses wanted to see. I want to see your face. And do you remember where Moses wasn't allowed to go in his physical life? He couldn't pass into the promised land. But now, where's Moses? He is in the promised land. And what is he beholding? He's seeing the glory of God. I want to see your face, to see the glory of God. And the exact glory of God is contained in Christ, his son. Moses is seeing what he said he most wanted to see. And it's a long time after he lived. But notice that Moses still what? Lives. And then Elijah. Elijah, he's kind of famous, not just for that fire from heaven consuming the offering. He's also famous for what happened in the next chapter because he gets a little whiny. And in 1 Kings 19, 10 and 14, he repeats himself. 
Because God asked this question, hey, Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah's response is, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am the only one left. And they seek my life to take it away. God responds to Elijah, Hey, Elijah, I kept 7,000. But what does Elijah meet here on this mountain? Do you remember what Elijah said? I've been jealous for the Lord. Here he meets the one who's most jealous for the Lord. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am the only one left and they seek my life to take it away. Here is the one who truly was the only one left. Because he would stand alone. And they would seek to kill him. And they would. Here's the fulfillment of what Elijah had er erroneously thought about himself and said about himself. Here's the one that it is about. For he would stand alone to do what only he could after he'd watched all of the closest abandon him and even one betray him. But Elijah... This is the one in whom you hoped that will fulfill everything. Finally, both were forerunners of the Christ. They were pointing to him. And in the midst of this conversation that takes place, Peter somehow has maintained his feet and he comes over and he recognizes that this is Moses and this is Elijah and that's Jesus. He's really bright right now. And he comes over and he has this question. It's a respectful, but it's a misguided proposal. Hey, do you want me to make a place to stay? But notice the self-forgetfulness that's there in the presence of his Savior too, because he says, I'll, we'll make a tabernacle for Moses and for Elijah and for you. No place for the three. I mean, maybe in there, maybe, maybe in there, there's a, a silent confession that they were happy to be doorkeepers for this mini house of the Lord? Maybe. Maybe. Peter tells us he didn't, or Luke tells us that Peter didn't know what he was saying. But he said it was good for them to be there, which, how true. And he makes that suggestion of tabernacles. And so and there's that positive side of were they content to be doorkeepers in this, for this mini house of the Lord that had been established there. But there's also the other side. Where did they want to stay? There. Which it's not wrong to want to be with Christ. But they weren't to stay at this point where? There. How often do we want to remain on the mountaintop where God reveals something more of himself than he has revealed previously to us? 
That's a natural, I mean, response. If I can just stay here. But the thing is, God doesn't give those things to us to keep to ourselves. We cannot keep what God has revealed to us, for God hasn't revealed it for only our personal benefit, but rather he's revealed it for the benefit of his people. Jesus hints at that on the way down. He's going to tell him, hey, you're going to tell people, but don't tell them yet. Don't tell them until after I've risen from the dead. And we'll get to that. Much as our sufferings and trials are not to be confined to our private benefit, so our blessings as well are to be shared. What they saw was breathtaking, and God would use it. They were not going to remain there. That glimpse that they got, he was going to use that in the unfolding of their life. And that was going to take place in that fallen world that they were going out to proclaim the good news to. But then the Father's glory shows up. This cloud, it envelops the mountain. And so Peter, well, he's talking about tabernacles and setting them up. And he's kind of like, seems like he's floundering through this. The Father, he says, I got this. And he puts a tabernacle of cloud upon the top of that mountain. Clouds are typically indicative of the presence of God. We saw it when Israel came up to Mount Sinai, that there was a cloud on top of the mountain. We see, we see this wonder of this cloud that's there. There's a cloud. you remember what led the Israelite children through the wilderness? This cloud that held the, the glory of God and that they followed. So God is here. God is present. And a voice comes from this cloud in the midst of it. And it declares three things. This is my beloved son. And we've heard him say this before. He said it in Matthew 3, at Jesus' baptism. Baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So he, he speaks those again, and then he adds, listen to him. He says, this is my beloved son. There's no one like him. He is unique. He is one of a kind. I'm well pleased with him. He declares this because by this time in Matthew, we've met a lot of people who aren't what? They're not well pleased with him. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, religious leaders, probably some of those political leaders that were there in those days. But they're not the only ones, are they? Who else had just been displeased with something that Christ had said? His disciples. Jesus had said, I'm going to what? I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And three days rise again. And the response of the disciples, Peter particularly, but likely for all, on behalf of all the disciples, well, says what? Surely not. He's saying, I don't like this. I don't think this is right. So they needed to hear this too. This is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. And we know that later on there's going to be more people, you know, there's going to be the people that are swayed by the religious leaders that aren't pleased with him either. But God the Father says, I am well pleased with him. And then he says, listen to him. And we have to note the context, which we've already mentioned. And what precedes this about the disciples not wanting that declaration that he made that he would suffer and die and rise again. 
The context reveals especially that when Christ foretells his suffering, burial, and resurrection, that, that that's what needs to be listened to. It, it also alludes to Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses said he's going to send a prophet like me, to him you shall listen. So the father here reiterates what he gave his prophet Moses, what he gave Moses way back. You shall listen to him. Listen to him. Moses came down the mountain with God's word to be declared to, be declared to the people that they would listen and know what it was to be his people. It was inscribed upon two stone tablets. Elijah came down the mountain with three of his, or Elijah came down the mountain meeting, his mountain meeting with instructions from God, which he summarily accomplished. Jesus is the Word. And he comes down the mountain with three of his disciples having been commanded to what? Listen to him. Listen to the word. He would declare that life is only found in him. And his disciples would later go forward into the world declaring the wonderful promise that there is life only in him because of his victory over the grave. And at that point, they could say, because we saw who he is and always has been. The voice in the cloud, ancient church father, Leo the Great, said it like this and says it way better than I ever could. A voice from the cloud said, in effect, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I'm manifested through his preaching. I'm glorified through his humility. So listen to him without hesitation. He is the truth and the life. He is my strength and wisdom. Listen to him whom the mysteries of the law foreshadowed and whom the mouths of the prophets sang. Listen to him who by his blood redeemed the world, who binds the devil and seizes his vessels, who breaks the debt of sin and the bondage of iniquity. Listen to him who opens the way to heaven and by the pain of the cross prepares you, prepares for you the steps of ascent into his kingdom. Listen to him. Well, they hear this voice and this declaration of who he is, God's being pleased with him and to listen to him. And they fell on their faces. The voice of the Father comes and they fall on their faces in terror. Similar to Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, there was this one who came over and touched Isaiah with, with this coal that cleansed his lips. But it's wonderful when we see this, these three, they fall on their face. And who is the one who comes over to them? Who is the one who's going to be their purity? Who's going to cleanse their lips? Not just cleanse them, but give them the words to say. And he's the one, the one intercessor between man and God. He comes over and he touched them, saying, rise. And not just rise and have no fear. They knew relief. Relief that only comes through the touch and the speaking or the words of Christ. A relief that you can know as well. If you have seen him, you know that there is no one and nothing that can make you right before God the Father except for God the Son. And he will touch and lift up and restore whosoever comes through his touch, through his voice. 
And then they go down the mountain. And as they go down the mountain, Jesus gives this final command. It's the final time he gives this. Don't tell anybody. I mean, first off, who would believe it, right? Man, let me tell you what I saw. Yeah, you didn't. But they did have three witnesses. So, I mean, there, there was that going for them. The final time the command is given in Matthew's gospel, because here's the thing. The disciples, we see that they understand a little bit, but they still have to understand more. The Spirit has to be given so they understand it as completely as they possibly can. Until the disciples grasp the bond between death and resurrection, between suffering and glory, they cannot accurately proclaim the wonder of this transfiguration. After the resurrection, the transfiguration will make sense. Why can he come back? Because he's God and he can't die. But I saw him die. That's because he's fully man and man can die. Now I have a brain cramp. But it's only because of this that he can do what he promised to do. And that he's done what he said he would do. And then I, I think it's weird that they don't have a question about that. They move immediately to, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Not the top of my list of questions. But if, I mean, they've been waiting. They know the Messiah is going to come. Elijah has to come before. So kudos to them for knowing like they're, this is the order of how things unfold. And Jesus, he answers them. And his answer makes it clear. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He says, well, the scribes are right in that. Elijah does come, and he'll restore all things. Where they get it wrong is that they don't recognize that Elijah's already come. And just as the first Elijah suffered for his faithfulness to the word that God had given, so John the Baptist suffered for the word that God had given. He, already, he has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And as they did to him, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. He points again to that reality. They've just seen the glory of who he really is. And they heard the reality from his lips that suffering will come. And so, and, and, and in verse 13, it says, The disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, they can say, fulfilled the role of Elijah to come. Hallelujah. But what do they still not understand? The suffering of the Messiah. They're still going to grow in their understanding of that. We Later on, as Jesus predicts his death, he's going to say they didn't understand, so instead of opposing him, they just kept quiet. Right? Anybody like that? <laughs> I don't understand. I'm just not going to say anything. But they come down with a greater understanding, with having experienced this wonderful vision of the God who is and who, this, who Jesus, who their friend is and has been from all eternity. And there's a transformation that is slowly taking place because we're going to watch them fits and starts, struggle, grow. Because their natural disposition was also our natural disposition. And it's antagonism and it's antipathy toward the God who made us. We saw that when Peter said, this won't happen to you. Left to ourselves, we don't want God's restraints on our behavior, our thinking, or any aspect of our lives. Peter made this clear when he said, surely not, Lord. But listen to him. This we, we have to continue to do. And as we listen, we must submit to his will as revealed by his word. So well, how do we do that? Well, common means of grace. He's given us his word. 
So how do we do this? We do this through reading the word and hearing it preached. Because he says in the word, life comes. It's how we're shaped. It's how we're molded. It's how we're conformed ever more to the image of Christ through the spirit working through his word. It's through, through meditating and praying over and through his word. The parts we understand and the parts we don't understand. Over all of it. Let me understand. And maybe we should add to that prayer. Let me understand in your timing. Because your timing is perfect. And if you decide not to reveal this to me, let me be content to wait. It's through partaking of the sacraments, baptism and communion. Because in baptism and communion, what we see taking place is an acted out sermon, an acted out physical illustration of what Christ has done for us. Baptism once when we confess our faith in Christ. Communion, here we do it first Sunday of every month. But as often as we do this in remembrance of him. Spending time together in community. This was mentioned already about Sunday school this morning. It's like, thank you for bringing things to my attention that I didn't notice. And it goes both ways. Thank you for bringing attention to me, things that I didn't notice, so that we would shape and conform by the will of God and by the presence of his spirit. He would shape all of us evermore into the image of Christ. His word was given that we might know the will of God and through the power of the spirit live according to its instruction and direction and do that where? Here in this world, until our final breath, until he returns, whichever would come first. In a world and in a culture, we cling to and proclaim his word. In a world and a culture that reviles life, that loves death, that willfully confuses God's good design for men and women, and that denies his existence and authority. That's not an exhaustive list. But that's the world and the culture we live in. Will we listen to that or will we listen to his word that does not change and the only word that brings and sustains and completes life? The father designed this event, this wonderful event, to assure the disciples that Jesus is both a suffering Messiah and the Lord of glory. One of the things that we can be sure of is that God gives us what we need when we need it. Not before and not too late. Right on time. I apologize. A quote from Gandalf comes to me. A wizard does not show up early or late, but precisely on time. The Father designed this event, this transfiguration, to assure the disciples that Jesus is both a suffering Messiah and the Lord of glory. He gives us what we need, when we need it, and it is always at precisely the right time. Ask that he would give you eyes to see that right time. Ask, yes, that he would give you patience to wait, endurance to bear up. And, under, and ask that he, would, that he would give you the contentment that if he should withhold whatever that is until you see his face in glory, that you would be content with that. But know that he will give those things that are needed precisely when they're needed. 
This experience, it resonated with Peter and John for the rest of their lives. You hear hints of it in their inspired writings. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John can say, I saw it, I was there. And it was beautiful. In 2 Peter 1, 16-18, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What's he talking about? He's talking about this mountain. He's talking about the veil being pulled back for just a little bit for when he received honor and glory from God. Peter's not saying, don't honor and glorify me because I saw what I saw. No, honor and glorify him for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and he proceeds, proceeds to point all of the attention, all of the glory, all of the honor, not to them for being there, but to him for accomplishing what he came to do. As they record these wonderful things, they do recall the wonder of the experience. But as they do that, they proceed immediately to point to the one who saves and delivers his people because of what he has done. They don't shun the experience because God gave that experience to them for a particular reason, and it was to bear fruit. So they don't shun the experience, but the exceedingly greater weight of what they bear witness to as they write is the wonder of the one they beheld, what he has done, and what he gives freely to whosoever will come. Because they wanted all those to whom they wrote as well as, well as you, as us, as me, to know the reality of the exceedingly greater weight of glory that he has prepared for you in Christ. God is always teaching us he is daily revealing his power and his presence. And we have likely had some sort of mountaintop experience. So the question now is how has God called you to incorporate it as you proclaim and share him? Let him be glorified.